Welcome everyone to the fourth episode of season two of the Northern Spin podcast. I'm Michael Taylor and as always I'm joined by the Archbishop of Banterbury himself, King Kentute, or on a good day, the cheeky chappy from Chorley, the Daily Mail's Chris Maguire. Well, thanks very much for that uh, wonderful introduction. It means a lot to me, not. Um, now, I have had a big weekend, actually, because I had a full English at the Harvester in Chorley oh, wow. on Sunday. Yeah, very nice. Leah again. Well, no, she went for a McMuffin, but I had a full English, uh, and we got some... And But you've got some exciting updates of your own, Michael, so I don't want to waste too much time talking about my full English. Um, we have got some thank yous, as usual. Yeah, we have. First and foremost, to our friends at What Media, who expertly produce this podcast every week, and they give us some great advice on how to create really fantastic media content. They've got some good news all of their own as well. Uh, they're now producing a video showcasing Manchester's cultural offerings to be screened at the International Society for the Performing Arts in New York in January. That's just absolutely brilliant to the team at What Media, isn't it? Yeah, well deserved, well deserved, and uh, well done to What Apple. Uh, what Apple? <laughs> I was thinking of. Big Apple and what media? What media and going the to the Big Apple? Yeah. yeah, there you go. Well done really? to yeah. what Apple. I think you should change your name. What media? No. A big thanks as always uh, uh, to you. Uh, also, big thanks to Oscar Technology. I'd like to thank our friends at uh, Oscar. I went in there last week and I met their managing director, a guy called Matthew Southworth. Um, it turns out his mother-in-law. She'll be listening to this. It's called Helen White. She's a co-founder and director of Marketing Stockport and the number one fan up there with Donald Moore, of Northern Spin. Now, the so, point, indeed, I know Helen. Obviously, we work together in Stockport. Yeah, well, she's a big fan of yours as well, obviously. I would imagine she didn't say that. But um, the point I'm making is that when Oscar Technology decided to sponsor Northern Spin, I would imagine the aim was to grow Oscar's profile across the world. Uh, but they've gone a lot further than that because what they've done is Matthew is now the world's most popular son-in-law. So he probably doesn't have to buy his mother, Helen, his mother-in-law, Helen, a Christmas present this year because he's bought the gift that money can't buy by sponsoring, um, you know, the Northern Spin. Well, what you're saying, Chris, is if you want to buy the perfect Christmas present for a loved one, then sponsor Northern Spin. We've got a sponsorship slot out there. We have got those little jingles that we do at the end of each section. Yeah. They are available for advertisers and sponsors. Slots available. Slots available. So be more like Helen. That's what we say. Great. Now, uh, you've been making headlines this week after you left Stockport Town Hall. I'm surprised I didn't see like one of those banner headlines at the bottom of Sky TV with that picture of you looking particularly miserable. Michael has left the building after it was announced that you'd become the new editor of Northwest Business Desk. Now, there's two things I need to ask you. The first one is this. Okay, should Northern Spin's number one fan, Helen, need to worry about your ongoing involvement? And will you be less laborish in your new role as the editor of the uh, Northwest Business Desk? Well, no, we're carrying on. So I can reassure everybody that we're carrying on with Northern Spin. I'm very much involved. Lee J and Alex, who I'm going to be working with at Business Desk, and I'll tell you what, I am so excited about starting this new job this week. Um, they've said, no, it's brilliant, but we want you to be the Business Desk's um, Michael Taylor on, on the Northern Spin. So um, I'm really chuffed about that. And yeah, it's 10 years since I'm, I'm moving back into the editor's hot seat, 10 years since I left Insider. In that decade, though, I've still you know, done loads of other media things. I've written, I've interviewed people for Big Issue in the North, including Gary Neville and Patrick Grant, who was on Question Time last week. And I used to do, the as part of the ongoing regional diplomacy role that uh, the Vice-Chancellor wanted uh, me to do for him at MMU, I used to interview the big hitters for the quarterly magazine. MetMag that uh, MMU put together. So I'd interview Andy Burnham, Alice Webb from the BBC, Jürgen Meyer from Siemens. So I never stopped. And I've always, I think, you know, 
want to go back to what you, what at least people think I'm good at. So yeah, I, it's and it's been it's been amazing, absolutely amazing working in politics with a politician of the caliber of Elise Wilson. She's fantastic. I've learned so much from her. It's been a real privilege to be able to serve the Labour group on the council, and I hopefully they'll win back control of the town all in September in in. Um, in May next year. When I became the editor of Northwest Business Insider, I followed in your uh, footsteps. Um, yeah, you, you took you, over part of my job, didn't you? I took over part of it, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, the hard part. Um, but when I took over, you had a reputation for going after people. You know, as a journalist, you always uh, you I? always went for the... Uh, really? Yeah, 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 oh, you cool. did. No, you did, you did. Can we, expect, can we expect more of the same at Business Desk? Yeah, well, I gave a lecture to Manchester Business School, which I also did a long read on LinkedIn about in at the beginning of 2019. Um, where I said that the business press, particularly in the Northwest, had become quite um, quite lame and was failing to police the boundaries of the business community by boosting the reputations of people who, frankly, all they had going for them was some slick, slick PR. And they were involved in bad practice and they were practically hiding in plain sight. So I'm serving notice right here, right now, that those people, I'm coming for you. I'm going to be really channeling the spirit of David Conn in The Guardian, who's um, who also used to write for me at Insider and yeah. go for people, as you put yeah. it, Chris. But that's right. I think I think it's really important. If you want to be the voice of a community, you've got to be able to say what are the values that hold it together. And you know, there's a there's a role for good news as you as you as you do every Friday on LinkedIn, which is great. I always look forward to reading that. But it can't be at the expense of masking the bad behaviour of, of people in business. I think there's a real role for the media in holding those people to account and exposing them. Mm. Yeah, well, good luck with that, and I, uh, and, and I, I agree. Yeah, so that's enough of that. But one of the big political stories of the week, Chris, has been the ongoing strikes. We've got ambulance workers, nurses, railway staff, baggage handlers at airports, highway... Um, Highways Agency, Border Force, driving examiners, the Royal Mail, university lecturers, all striking in December in what armchair pundits are calling the winter of discontent, taking us back to 1978 for those with long memories. We're going to do a deep dive in a minute into some of the various strikes, what the issues are. Um, but what do you, where do you stand on the principle of strikes? Because I was really taken, actually, with Question Time on Thursday night, where Patrick Grant from Community Clothing and various other fashion brands was on there. They'd obviously got a businessman to come on and, and be the voice of reason. And, they, and I think he surprised everybody by saying, well, people have frankly had enough. Yeah. Look, well, I thought, because when we discussed what we're going to talk about on WhatsApp, um, you know, on these podcasts, I thought, you know, the big issue is clearly the strikes. And it's very easy for us to duck that one and to talk about things that we're maybe more comfortable with. But the bottom line is for this podcast to, to be genuine and have integrity, much the same way you're talking about your new role at Business Desk, we've got to be honest as well. And the strike is a really, really big issue at the moment. And I, I thought what I'd try and do is provide some context to the reason why I think the way I do. Um, I absolutely respect people's right to withdraw labour. That is their right. I also recognise that with the inflation rate in the UK at 11%, is causing a real cost of living crisis. But the government's stated ambition, their number one priority is to bring inflation under control. So if they pay these double-digit pay rises, then inflation won't be under control. Um, that's the problem. Now, nobody wants to strike, but but uh, and like you, I, I grew up in the minor strike, 1984, 1985. I was 12 at the time. But, but Chris, you were, let's just put this in context for the benefit of people listening. I lived through the miners' strike, yeah? Well, I, my dad was a milkman. We, we, we didn't have miners in Lancaster. I was a very much an observer and a, um, 
I only participated in the sense that I collect, rattled a collecting tin and, and supported the miners and had arguments with my mates. Your yeah. dad was a miner. Your yeah. dad worked underground yeah. and, and obviously to, to the great expense of his health yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and his hearing. So yeah. let's just reiterate that point that you, yeah. you not only you experienced yeah. the, the, the social tension that came about from the miners' strike in 1984-85. My dad was a miner. He worked as an air ventilation officer. Um, his dad was a miner before him. He worked down the pits. He died age 62 of uh, you know having spent his life down the pits as well. My dad would go to the, um, you know, would go to the uh, the pub every every Sunday with his mates from the mines. I mean, he was ingrained in that colliery background, um, you know, and he, he and, and I was sort of, you know, sort of sheltered from that in some degree because we lived about seven miles away from where the pit was. Um, but yeah, I look back on it, and that was a huge part of my life. And I listened to an interview last week with the Education Secretary Gillian Keegan with Nick Robinson, which was excellent. And she said something that really resonated with me, and something I thought I'd share today. So she's from Liverpool. She's from Knowlesley. Um, she went to a comprehensive school. She got like 10 O-levels. She did superbly well. But she explained that her dislike of Arthur Scargill, who was the firebrand leader of the National Union of Miners, the NUM, that really shaped her philosophy. And it went a long way to shaping mine as well. So as I mentioned, I was 12 at the time. My dad worked down the pits, never crossed a picket line. Um, he used to pick fruit to make ends meet. He didn't really speak about the strikes and never really have. But what I remember uh, as a 12-year-old together with my twin brother is the strike absolutely divided communities. As I mentioned in an earlier podcast, we used to go to church and uh, we used to go through to deal and there was a house, it was a council house and it had the word scab painted on uh, with white paint. And that, even when they washed it off, you could still see the outline of the word scab for years and years later. And I thought that was a metaphor for the strikes because it, it completely divided communities. Yeah, I hear you, Chris, honestly. For, for me, though, I, I, was, I was a fulsome supporter of the miners' strike at the time. Arthur Scargill was definitely the barrier to getting wider public support. His refusal to hold a national ballot amongst all of the coal miners at the time really divided the National Union of Mine Workers to the extent that the mine workers in the Nottinghamshire coal field actually broke away and formed their own union, the Union of Democratic Miners, UDM. It was as well, to quote the lads that I got to know from the Blythe Coldfield in Northumbria, who'd come down to Lancaster to picket Glass and Dock, and we'd sometimes go to Paddyham Power Station to picket as well. Um, they described the whole strike issue at the end of it as a monkey on our backs. And honestly, I've, um, I, th I think that was fair. So just give us a bit more background yeah, on the strike. It, because we've got a lot of younger listeners, and it's worth explaining the background to this. So back in 1984-85, when we had the miners' strike, um, the context was that, that, that there used to be a thousand mines, but by about 1984, I think there were about 173, 175, um, and people weren't using coal like they used to. And the real problem was that when they started coal mining, all the coal seams were close to the surface, but you had to go further and further down to get the coal. It was proving more expensive so it's ending up costing money so the national coal board the ncb and uh, actually i have to remember a little funny story but i played the part of a dustman at uh, in the school play and i had to have a like a uh, donkey jacket and my dad had one which had ncp on the back so they took the ncp <laughs> the ncb off but you could still read the letters so i was the only dustman 
at, uh, and Jesus. I'm going to Jesus with NCB on my back. So the unions reached even further. Anyway, I tell you that. Uh, but, but, but the serious point was the government, along with the NCB, announced that they were going to close these loss-making mines, which would destroy communities where coal mines were the main employers. Um, so, so I lived in, my dad was from a place called Elsham, you know, so it's a weird snowdown, which was the mine in, uh, in Kent. Now, this bitter national strike followed uh, against colliery closures, even though there was never an actual vote. That was a big controversy. Scargill took a really, really hard line. Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of the day, called his bluff. Just one thing, Chris, on that, uh, if I remember rightly as well, the um, the electricity generating industry in this country was was um, used coal. They have coal-fired power stations. And one of the big tactical mistakes that Arthur Scargill made was he called the strike in, in March, where obviously the demand for, um, for electricity is at its lowest, and it gets lower all the way through summer. Yeah. which gave the government the, the opportunity to build up the stocks of coal, which they had done all the way. So the, the confrontation came at absolutely the worst point. If they'd called the strike in, say, um, October, and the coal stocks had been depleted, um, then it was game it, over. It, it was, well, we've just uh, crashed out of the World Cup. It was a massive own goal uh, for the uh, Arthur Scargill because the government built up a six-month stockpile yep. Yep. of fuel. And actually, you're right. They called a strike at the spring in the beginning of the summer. So the government knew, because they were preempting this, the government knew, actually, they could see this out because, obviously, people stopped using yep. coal as much. And also the steel industry did, which leads me on to, um, as you're going to il illustrate, there was the Battle of Orgreave. That's yeah. the... That's a coking plant near Rotherham. It's where the Advanced Manufacturing Park is now, actually, yeah. um, in, in South Yorkshire. And there was a pitched battle. Um, miners trying to stop lorries going into the coking plant and, and to fill it up. They're also importing coal, by the way, from Poland, from it, communist Poland, it, it, in, into ports like Glastonbury near Lancaster. The thing is, what you have to remember, though, is, as a 12-year-old kid watching the telly, the BBC, when... when Back in the day, at six o'clock, you sit around the telly with your family and watch it. You don't do it now because you stream everything and it goes through your phone. Um, but back then, you see images of flying pickets. You would descend uh, and prevent people and, and be really intimidating. But then you also had these situations, like you mentioned in South Yorkshire, the Battle of Orgreave, where the police, it, the way they behaved was absolutely horrendous. Um, you know, but you see this every night on your TV and you see Arthur Scargill making these vitriolic statements. And you see people like my dad, a very, very proud man, who just worked and picked fruit, didn't talk about it to me and my brother. And he'd come home and I seem to remember he'd earn 70 quid a week. Now I could be wrong because my dad's deaf. So, so I can't speak to my dad unless I'm face to face with him. So, but, but otherwise I would have phoned him up. But I think he got about 70 quid a week picking fruit and his, his, his yeah, hands would be bleeding. You've told that before. It's Absolutely. an incredible story. So the, problem, incredible. the problem was is when the strike finally ended in 1985, so it lasted a year, uh, 12 months, phenomenal. The unions were smashed, not just the NUM, but the unions yeah. generally had taken an absolute mortal yeah. blow. The coal mining industry, as we knew it, was destroyed. Communities took years to recover. Some never have. Um, and we Michael had Heseltine who actually finished them off about five years later, wasn't it? If, if the problem is, you had a situation where Margaret Thatcher and the Tories were held as the winners, and everybody else on the minor side were held as the losers. Um, and that's the situation I worry about when we talk about all this strike action. Yeah. Uh, and that's why Arthur Scargill will never be a name that I remember fondly, and okay. nor will a lot of other people like uh, uh, like Keegan. Right. So, so Chris, um, there's been. I think there's been a lot of romanticism about the miners' strike from films like Brassed Off and Pride and about how the state brutally crushed the strikes back then, as you've very eloquently described. But I don't feel any of those accounts really convey the deep unpopularity of the strikes at the time. So I've stood in the middle of Lancaster as a, 
as a political campaigner for standing up for many causes, nuclear disarmament, anti-racism. And in 2019, I was campaigning to stop Brexit. And none of them, none of them elicited the hostility that the strike did when me and my lefty mates would have our yellow coal not doll stickers on, rattling tins to collect for the miners. And people were basically just saying, do one, you know, get Scargill to pay for it out of his pension fund or sell, get him to sell one of his Jaguar cars. Genuine working class Northern people did not like Arthur Scargill. And the media made it all about violence. People lost, people lost their lives. Breeze blocks were dropped on taxis taking um, working miners to their um, to their place of work. And Neil Kinnock, the Labour leader at the time, who was elected on a bit of a wave of optimism after the 83 election, was, was constantly on the back foot being asked to um, condemn the violence. Yeah, it was um, it's a horrible part of our, uh, uh, you know, childhood. And, and actually, people talk about that, the printer strikes in London as well. Yeah. You know, because what happened is the unions thought they were completely and utterly, um, you know, uh, sort of copper bottoms, you know, that nothing could get to them. And actually, if somebody is prepared to take them on, actually, it depends how far can the unions go. Um, I, I think what I would say is that, you know, we're both men of a certain age. So, so we remember the minor strike. A lot of our younger listeners won't. And if you try and find comparisons, thankfully, those comparisons don't exist between no, these I strikes. I, don't, I completely agree. You know, I'm and those strikes. And also, when people talk about the winter of discontent, the 1970s are very different to what they are now. Um, but there are similarities. But well, one are... of the similarities is the, uh, the, the, the media, and I include in that the very neutral Metro, which I read every day, yeah. not just for the Sudoku puzzle. Yeah. They did a headline a couple of weeks ago calling Mick Lynch the Grinch and all of this business. And they're just, they're trying to do to Mick Lynch what they tried to do to Arthur Scargill. Mick Lynch is and a he, million miles and he's away. he's so much yeah, better a communicator. He's a than... million miles away from Arthur Scargill. Um, having said that, though, I think, um, I, think, I think he runs a risk of it being personality-driven. Uh, and, and he's got to be really careful about that, but he recognises that himself. I think if we look at today's strikes, um, it, it, you, you can't take a one hat fits all because everybody is striking. I think the well, not everybody, no, not everybody, Come but on. a lot of public sector. There are a are. lot of strikes, and we listed who they are. Yeah. a lot of them in, they're in both the public and private sectors. But I think it really does play to a, a moment of the. I mean, you, I'd like you to give your justification for why you think that the people are being unreasonable. I'd like to hear that economic argument. But I think that there's also a sense at the moment that the country just isn't working. I agree with the second part, and also I'm not saying I'm not saying people are being unreasonable. I think you need to need to separate it. You know, so in terms of the NHS, I think um, I absolutely I was on the doorstep clapping the NHS, and I think the under I think the NHS workers have been underfunded. Everybody would agree that they've been underfunded. I think the problem is is that when the unions come out and say they need a uh, pay rise of five percent above inflation, which will work out nineteen percent. <laughs> that is unrealistic, and and I know it's not a big poll of people, but I've spoken to nurses, and there isn't anybody who wants to strike in the NHS. In fact, I'd argue probably nobody wants to strike. Full stop. But if the unions come out and say we want a ninety percent pay rise when we've got inflation running at eleven percent, that is not a good place to start a conversation. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to pick you up on that point that you made about the pay rises aren't affordable. Um, we're sponsored by a recruitment firm, Oscar Technology. They will tell you it's a candidate's market at the moment and that good people are commanding good rates of pay. Um, but why should the NHS staff, who are subject to the same price increases in an utterly broken system under incredible pressure, put up with it? Two things. Something has to change in the NHS and the public service in general. We're not in a position 
well, as we were in 1945, where Nye Bevan famously promised to fill doctors' mouths with gold. But the government is responsible and is ultimately has a duty to maintain a realistic service level in the NHS to maintain the health and fitness of our population, which has a huge retention problem. So therefore, it needs to level with people. If they're not to be paid properly, and they are quite happy for people to walk away from jobs in the NHS, and it's to be run no, not as a profession but as a voluntary service, then maybe the public can expect no better and the government just have to level with them. Secondly, despite your entirely unscientific and anecdotal poll of your nurse friends in Chorley, the nursing unions, the Royal College of Nursing Chorley, and Unison, have, yeah. <laughs> wherever they're from, but they are friends. They have a mandate to strike, unlike the miners that we yeah. discussed. We're agreed on that, I think. Yeah. So, And they've, they've offered to drop the strikes if the government meet to agree to talk about pay. And I think that is entirely reasonable. So Chris, the, the ball is very firmly in the government's court. Rishi Sunak has been dusting off the Thatcher playbook and trying to demonize the strikers, as Jake Berry has as well. But the public look on with much more sympathy to these strikers now than they did towards the minor strikers, which we were um, using as an example earlier. Yeah, I just what, come, do you, what do you think? Is that fair? Yeah, I want to come back on a couple of points. One yeah. is that the majority of the public back the NHS. I absolutely agree with that. In terms of with the uh, the RMT and Mick Lynch, um, I'm not sure the decision to have even more strikes over Christmas, you know, is is a way to uh, ingratiate themselves with the public. I'm not convinced of that. Um, for reasons of full disclosure, I'm not an expert on the rail strikes. I'm not going to pretend to be, but our train service is broken. Now, that's if you can call it a train service. The same with Royal Mail. The company is facing unprecedented challenges. Every day of strike action weakens the business further when they are facing so much competition. However, and this is a really big point as well, companies like Royal Mail that pay big dividends to their shareholders can't take them over high ground when workers strike now you, you you ask about in terms of um are people right to strike it is within their right to strike um and the ball very much is in the government's court in terms of the conservatives in terms of how they deal with this there's this phony pr battle going on the tories are blaming the unions for the strikes and the unions are blaming the tories uh, you just touched upon jake berry jake berry i think is the, um, he's not helping the situation at all. And Jake, if you're listening to the show, and I would urge you to because you're not in touch with reality, Jake, um, because you're taking the social media, you're posting silly, like, immature tweets talking about a socialist advent calendar with details of the forthcoming strikes. They are, he is at the worst end of the Conservative Party. And I wonder what his thinking is at the moment. I wonder if he's thinking to himself, there's no way I'm going to win Rosendale with Darwin. Remember, this is the same MP who told struggling Brits uh, to get a new job at the Tory party conference. Um, and, and I think the Tories are looking at, they're reported to be looking at anti-strike laws. And I think they've got to be really careful with their rhetoric. The, the, uh, the health uh, unions basically laid down a gauntlet at the weekend and said to Stephen Barkley, he said, hey, let's have a conversation. Uh, that's right. That's absolutely right to do that. But if their starting point is that they want a 19% pay rise, then where does that leave the opportunity to have a meaningful conversation? And this is where the truth lies somewhere between the two. 19% isn't affordable. Even you would accept that. Even Wes Streeting at the weekend was interviewed by Laura Koonsberg and was asked, how much would you pay nurses? And he said, I'm not going to commit to something I can't deliver on. So even Labour recognised 19% is not sustainable. I think there needs to be a more conciliatory approach from government. I think the offer 
to meet with the uh, the health unions offer to meet with government and to drop the, the threat of a strike is an entirely genuine one. And they need to get around the table, as Andy Burnham's been calling for, a more conciliatory approach from government and maybe some good faith on both sides to come together to concede some ground on this. Yeah, what do you think about Labour and Labour's position? Because um, it's interesting. I mentioned West Streeting. Labour have changed. They are the party in waiting. They're the government in waiting. Absolutely, you know, and, and their big challenge won't be winning the next election. It will be trying to deal with the, the fallout from, from the current government. Um, but you're hearing West Streeting talking about his differences of opinion with the health unions already. He's saying to people, we will invest in the NHS, but we expect an improvement in the service. I think what's interesting is that, you know, you've got Labour MPs like Richard Burgeon, who I know isn't the most popular Labour MP. Uh, Dawn Butler tweeting pictures over the weekend last week of them, you know, on the uh, on the strike line. Keir Starmer's got this really delicate balancing act. We've used this analogy before on previous podcasts about carrying this Ming vase. Um, he knows that strike action is an absolute um, potential time bomb, and he wants to make sure he's on the right side of it as well. Um, what do you think Labour should do? Uh, I think West Streeting was right, and I think it put him on a bit of a. Um a bit of a clash potentially with characters in the Labour Party like Richard Bergen. So, but if, but if you put Richard Bergen to one side for a moment, and I would dearly love to do that, I think he's an idiot. Mm. I dearly wish someone would. But West Streeting is also helpfully talking about a much more practical, different way of looking at the NHS, um, using the capacity in the private healthcare sector, which when you've been in the Labour Party, any talk of privatisation of the NHS is something that it's a card that's deployed all the time. The left in the Labour Party want a much broader public service. They want no use of any private facilities. Owen Smith, who challenged Jeremy Corbyn for the leadership of the Labour Party in 2016, um, was absolutely hammered for this because he previously worked for private healthcare companies or suppliers to the NHS and for the pharmaceuticals industry. It's almost like a religion with them. And I'm glad that West Streeting's taking on that thought in the Labour Party because the, you know, the, the, the key word in NHS is service. It's yeah. there to serve the public. And what he was particularly talking on about the vested interests that he's prepared to take on is the BMA, the Doctors' Union, the British Medical Association, which seems to be standing in the way of funding more postgraduate places for um, for doctors. At the moment, um, there's, a, there's a cap on the number of postgraduate places for doctors. So Chester University, for instance, which wants to open a medical school, can't do so um, in, in supplying doctors to the NHS, but they can open a medical school and train doctors from overseas, which seems madness. Yeah, one thing I would agree, I think we both agree on, is that um, I, I, uh, I applaud the NHS. I generally applaud them. And, and w there has to be a solution. There has to be a conversation around the table. And this can't play out in the press as well, because ultimately, you know, we're talking about this, this, um, you know, this, 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 this uh, new virus. It's like 15 kids have died of, uh, of this virus as well. It, you, you know, you're going to see stories about people not being able to get ambulances, not being able to get to hospitals and people dying. That's not a message that any of us want to read. Of course not. So there has to be a solution, but that requires a compromise on both sides. Okay, well, there you go. The voice of reason, Chris McGuire and, and me talking about the current strikes. Right, we're going to take a short break. Please feel free to insert a sponsor's message into this bit, but we'll see you after this short interlude. <laughs> Well, welcome back to the latest episode of Northern Spin. Um, 
Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the interval, as mentioned before, by Michael Taylor. Those um, slots are available for an advertiser with some vision looking to get their message across the north and the world because, as you know, Michael, we're still big in Bahrain. Now, we're going to discuss my attempts at getting more northern, which have taken a significant step forward. But before then, let's talk about Labour's attempts to cozy on up to business in Canary Wharf last week. Yeah, I think it's all very exciting. So I'm, I'm, I'm re- genuinely interested in your take on this as a, as a voice of business, as the editor of Business Cloud. What do you think about Labour's attempts? Executive and, editor and, of Business Cloud. No, da- no doubt you've, you've read the uh, Labour startup scale-up, Making yeah. Britain the Best Place to Start and Grow a Business, which Rachel Reeves, Jonathan Reynolds and Keir Starmer launched by my bedside. in Canary Wharf last week, along with Lord Jim O'Neill, the former Goldman Sachs economist, one-time Tory peer. He took the Tory whip in the House of Lords. He was ennobled by George Osborne. And he was the author of the book about the BRICS economies, which stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, and wrote extensively about the new world economic order. And the document is quite interesting. It's full of some quite interesting, um, stimulating ideas about how to support small business and startup business in particular, drawing on the experience of the French who have a system called TB, which is uh, encourages um, strengthened engagement between investors and venture capital groups to improve the flow of money into young companies and improving the incentives to create more spin-outs from universities. So what do you think? Is, is that a noble ambition? That- yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's more than an ambition, though. I think, I think you know, when Labour spoke about being pro-business, everyone like approached it with a degree of cynicism. I think under Jeremy Corbyn, everyone knew that Labour hated business. Now, Starmer has made... <laughs> that might be being a bit strong. No, no, I don't think so. Um, but, but, but you are a Labourist after all. Um, Starmer's made a big play on being pro-business, and I think people are starting to sort of accept that as well. There's two trains of thought here. One is how pro-business are Labour and how, and how uh, anti-business are the Conservatives at the moment as well. Now, Liz Truss completely destroyed any reputation the Conservatives had for being trusted with the economy. I mean, I'm reading Kwasi Kwarteng's interviews over the weekend oh, as well. Man. And you're just looking at it, you're thinking, well, if you can see that now, surely at the time you could have seen that. Um, and we are still, and we are going to carry on paying the consequences for their recklessness for years to come. You went to the Labour conference in Liverpool, which incidentally, I stumbled across the fringe um, programme that you gave me last uh, in September. And there are a lot of businesses in the room, lots of uh, really big businesses as well lots of adverts you didn't always see that at labor conferences no you didn't now my view is that starmer realizes the challenge and i touched on this earlier it won't be in winning this general election but it's going to be dealing with the problems that labor will inherit because if labor are going to make a sizable difference they want to win at least two terms they're not going to turn things around in one term and they're actually almost preparing the population for that at the moment and some of the people they're getting some of the business people they're getting supporting them yeah. so, so we get that the narratives change but yeah. what, what do you think uh, have you got any red flags for labor um, yeah, I think, well, you know, we touched on it before. We were two Remainers. Um, and there are two issues, I think, which which they are very, very sensitive about. One is Brexit and one is immigration. So most businesses, I think it would be fair to say, um, are pro, uh, well, you know, we're anti-Brexit. I used to host events and I used to say, right, how many people in the room are in favour of Brexit? And you'd have 100 people in the room and two hands would go up. And yet when it came to a public vote, we voted for Brexit. Um, I had a great anecdote about this, by the way, from our mutual friend Ian Curry, who said he went to a golf day and all the golf players at a corporate golf day all voted to remain and all the caddies voted to leave. Yeah, no, and it's a really good analogy. 
Labour know that they can't rewrite Brexit because that would be an election. No, no. Um, but, uh, but, but they have to be seen to be tough on immigration. And uh, Keir Starmer is giving talks about being tough on immigration as well. There was a really interesting uh, piece at the weekend that was written by Labour grandee, Peter Hayne in The Observer. He's calling, he wants, he wants Keir Starmer to be business friendly. And he says that Keir Starmer needs to develop a series of political policies to address the economic disaster, his words, disaster of Brexit. Lord Haynes describes Brexit as a taboo subject because the Conservatives, quote, won't admit the huge damage it has done to the economy and because Labour remains understandably reluctant to rekindle old Brexit flames. So we have this situation, I think, in terms of Labour, where they're saying all the right words. The conversation they had at Canary Wharf was spot on. I think they had a shadow cabinet member on every table talking to businesses. They are going front and centre to ingratiate themselves with business. You've hosted events here in the North uh, where you've had senior business uh, Labour politicians attending those events but Labour don't want to go near Brexit and they don't want to get too close to immigration. Is that fair? Yep, I think it's all very fair. I can't really add to that, Chris. But what I would want to do on, uh, and I've said all of that before on this podcast, but let me deal with one of the other points, which I don't think has received enough scrutiny about the so-called untapped potential of unexploited intellectual property in our university sector. I don't see it. I genuinely don't see that the proposals in that startup scale-up paper um, that effectively all they're going to do is put a lot more scrutiny and another dashboard, as they call it, of monitoring how many spin-outs from each university. The, at the moment, the incentives and the priorities for universities are you know, to, to educate young people. And if it's a Russell Group University, a research-based university like Manchester, Sheffield, or, the, or Oxford and Cambridge, or UCL and Imperial, that's very much geared towards um, to, to achieving more research grants. So at the moment spin-ups and startups and, and all the rest of it and the, this idea that there's this latent pool of untapped ip in our universities that's not being spun out i just i don't see it and i don't see necessarily the incentives queued up at the moment by just wagging your finger at universities and saying you're not doing enough but i do think on the point about the conservatives let's so labor are making those big play for business I think you over you over you overstate it when you say Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party hated business. I think they fundamentally didn't understand business. I'll agree, I'll agree with you on that one, but I think hated's a little strong. Can I just say then? John no. McDonald did make some some genuine attempts to try to understand, but I don't think they understood they understood business. It's fine, we agree on that. Jeremy Corbyn, if you're listening, you want to come on Northern I Spin. I don't want <laughs> Cat Weasel on my podcast. Okay. Now, uh, one thing I want to talk about. I want to talk. Far. No, but I want to talk about my own anecdotal okay. evidence. You, you've you've tipped yours into this one as well. So my dad was 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 a milkman and then a, a small holding farmer. He voted Conservative in '79 and '83 because he bought into the idea that Margaret Thatcher was the, uh, the, the, the should be the choice of small businesses. Um, my, my, my wife's Rachel's brother-in-law, Brian, runs his own business. My nephew, Jamie, is, is in the building trade. They're all in, in that kind of risk-taking, hustling business owners, whatever sector they're in. And at different times, they bought into that idea that the Tories are on their side. And I think it's quite clear that actually when push comes to the shove, that on issues like prompt payment, a fair deal from banks who royally screwed over businesses during the, the, the Tory years under Cameron Osborne, access to procurement as well in the public sector. It's always the big businesses, not the small businesses that are at the front of the queue. And I think we saw during COVID as well that people, it wasn't going to be the likes of our Brian getting a, a contract from the Tory government. It was the VIP fast lane that included Michelle Moan, Doug Barrowman and Matt Hancock's pub landlord. 
Yeah, and, and uh, you know, well said, incidentally. A couple of things that you mentioned there that uh, just make me think. One is, um, in terms of uh, Matt Hancock, you know, his pandemic diaries weren't a diary written in a pandemic. They were looked back retrospectively. That's quite interesting as well. And uh, this situation with Michelle Moan and Doug Barrowman is not going to go away. Uh, I noticed at the weekend, the Sunday Times published details of the company that benefited most from the PPE contracts. They, were, they, they, they went to 1.85 million, a billion was the contract. Now, what I would say, there was a need for PPE, so I don't want to demonise everybody, but all this is coming out in the wash. Um, something I want to talk about, if I may, which is uh, we spoke, spoke about mining in the uh, first part of the show, and there was a big announcement last week by uh, the Leveling Up Secretary, Michael Gove. Incidentally, the Leveling Up bill goes back before Parliament this week, so watch this space. Um, the Woodhouse Colliery Scheme near Whitehaven in Cumbria has been given the green light by Community Secretary Michael Gove. Now, you didn't, uh, you heard correctly, this is the UK first major coal mine for 40 years and it's been and it's it's caused a right royal rumpus uh, among political people now i tried to find out about this we and you're very uh, strong on this you know for this podcast to work we have to provide insight 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 you know i i don't profess to be an expert on all things northern cumbria um, but what i did do and it tells you something about how we look to our local newspapers i looked at the whitehaven news's website and just to recap about this the development this mine was first proposed in 2017 and it was approved three times by Cumbria County Council. The then Community Secretary, Robert Jenrick, a good friend of Risha Sunak, decided to call in the application, basically buy some time, and a very time-consuming inquiry followed. The inquiry heard that the mine would provide 532 permanent jobs, 80% filled with the local workforce, and support 1,000 jobs in the supply chain. But not a lot of people are in support, are in favour of it, certainly nationally. What do you think? I think it smacks of cynicism on the government's part. And if you go to an area that's been run down and they see an, an opportunity to exploit it for their own culture war purposes, that they're pitting environmentalists against local communities, when actually the opportunity exists on the energy coast, which is West Cumbria, they've got a, th a thriving nuclear industry, which is a huge source of employment opportunities in West Cumbria. And they've got the opportunity to develop onshore and offshore wind, which would be a far safer and would be much more consistent with our commitments, which we signed not 100 miles away at the COP26 summit in Glasgow. And I'd quote a, a professor of engineer, en energy and climate governance at the University of Lancaster, Rebecca Willis, who said, there is no business case or scientific justification for this mine, which has only been made possible by a quirk of the planning laws. It will harm the UK's climate credentials, do very little for communities in Cumbria, where the focus should be delivering long-term secure green jobs and this is about as ungreen as you can possibly get yeah i think it's interesting because i think cumbria is the second biggest county in the country by landmass it's it's home to sellerfield it's home to the energy coast i've hosted business events up there mike starkey who's a conservative mayor of copeland has been very supportive claims that 90 percent of local residents are, are behind it the problem with it is is that the decision is complete at odds with cop 26 and our commitments uh, in Glasgow, um, most of the coal, I think, after five years, will go to export anyway. It's a very strange decision when set against the government's approach to onshore wind farms and fracking. Um, and um, and once again, I mean, two years out from a general election, will it happen? I'm not so sure. And on that bombshell, Michael, we're going to go to our second interview, which, as you mentioned earlier, is available for the right sponsor looking to broaden their reputation out globally. Great. See you after the break, where we'll go into the fun bit. <laughs> Welcome 
Welcome back to the Northern Spin podcast to the third section. This is the bit we like to call the fun bits, where we update listeners on Chris's attempts to become a little bit more northern. And it looks like you've made some progress. What have you been up to? Well, I mean, you know, I've probably moved ahead about a year in my northern training that you've uh, that you've been overseeing. So the background to this is a new £365 million music arena currently being built near the Etihad Stadium called Co-op Live. I was invited to a, they say exclusive, there was 300 other people got an exclusive invite, I'd imagine. Yeah, but um, get you, I didn't. That, well, it was a countdown party, it was at a night and day cafe, never been there before. I went with my, I went with my wife, featuring a performance by The Blossoms, who mentioned several times they're from Stockport, what a nice bunch of lads they were as well. Um, yeah, really enjoyed it. Uh, they had Clint Boone, and he's a legend as well, saying a few words at the beginning as well. And honestly, I came out of there feeling right northern. Right. If I can just pull you up on one thing. So if you're if you're going to be properly northern and you're properly trying to plead your Stockport credentials for a start, their name is Blossoms, not The Blossoms. Oh, did I say The Blossoms? You did. Okay, sorry. You did. So, just seeing if you were awake there. Yeah. So if, if you knew Tom and Miles and Joe and the lads, like <laughs> I do, then you'd get that one right. And um, what's, that, what's that on the floor? Oh, that'd be the names you yeah. dropped. Anyway, listen, so you met Clint Boone. Yeah. Did he give you any tips on a haircut? Because you, you need to do something <laughs> about that, as you've said yourself, to be fair. Yeah. I'm not picking fault with yeah. people's physical no. appearances. That's no. your thing. No. But um, you did say that you wanted to sort your bonds out. Yeah. And Clint Boone's got this kind of well-end haircut, I think they sometimes call it. Are you, are you thinking I did of- say I met Clint Boone. He was on a stage at the time oh, okay. and I was on the floor. We didn't actually talk. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean... That's, who, who else was there? That's what, well, I'll tell you who was there that I found quite interesting. Andy Burnham. And he does get around because I'm thinking, oh, Andy Burnham's saying a few words. But he wasn't. He was just there. Um, well, he'd, there go was, to, he'd go to the opening of an envelope. Warrington Middleton was there, who is the managing partner at KPMG. He was there. Uh, Mark Yaff from uh, JMW Solicitors. And you, and you met my friend Kai Ojo. Yeah, had a great chat with him at Planswear. Um, Tech entrepreneur. Great business. Son-in-law great business. of the late, great, amazing councillor Sheila Bailey. Oh. Yeah, it was just a really, um, it was a really good, uh, really good event actually. Not my normal cup of tea, I'll be honest with you, because uh, the music was quite loud. Which gets me on to a point, okay, right? Because I've never been to the Night and Day Cafe. Uh, it's a bit like San Carlos, and it's got all these pictures on the side of all these like gigs that they've held as well. But my missus looked at it on uh, on 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 the, on, a, on the sort of safari, and she found that it's facing a closure threat. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so it's a ridiculous situation. There were some apartments built right next door to it that because of noise abatement, the people who bought those apartments can't get to sleep because the noise from night and day comes through into their uh, dwelling. And that's not night and day's fault. They were there before these apartments were built. And if they were built badly and the council didn't do a proper planning inspection on them at the time, then the fault for that shouldn't be that the night and day should be closed those people have to go and live somewhere else if they don't like it. I, I feel really sad about this. And maybe even, the, the you know, it's, it's the responsibility of the council to to, to look into that. Um, yeah. I play, I play, as you know, I play cricket. And uh, there was a ground that I used to play at. And the, the ground had been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they built a load of houses next to it. And then on one side of the ground, you weren't allowed to hit a six. So if you hit what was a what six. You not allowed yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How great big, work? Well, they had a great big net up. You had a great big net. So if it was hit that way and it hit the net, it was automatically a four. And he thinks, oh, well, hang on a minute. These cricket pitches have been here for hundreds and hundreds of years. These houses haven't, much the same way as these 
exclusive flats near the night and day. Um, and yet it's the night and day who are paying the price. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so, it, no, it sounded like I was a little bit mean about our mayor, Andy Burnham, turning up. You know, he does genuinely, he supports music venues, he supports music. You, can, you quite often see him, at, see him at gigs around and about. And I was absolutely delighted in one of my last acts as in my last job at Stockport Council to welcome Andy to come along to Stockport and do the honours for the launch of Stockport's economic plan last Wednesday. The thing, all I'm saying, I'm not. I got told off for being a fan of Andy Burnham. I just said I think he's a decent. Who told you, mayor. Not well, me. Somebody, somebody tweeted me uh, and said that uh, you know said some of the things I should be saying about Andy Burnham, which is ridiculous. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, what, what what struck me was that there he was. He wasn't. The big I am. You, I don't think you'd see a, uh, many Metro mayors doing that, you know. And he was just, he was just having a good time, I think. And mind you, Everton aren't playing at the moment, so uh, that might change. Now, you've been busy yourself because you've been attending the Fresh Walks Christmas party on Friday, and you've also been to the uh, Patagonia Manchester's fifth birthday party, neither of which I was invited to. Well, no. So my my friend, <laughs> my friends Neil and John actually knocked on the door of the Night and Day Cafe. And they weren't allowed in. He says, no, it's private party. And they looked in and they went, no, it's full of squares anyway. Let's go to the Patagonia one on the same night. It was a really, really good do. And our mate Sam Buckley from Where the Light Gets In and Yellowhammer in Stockport was doing the food, which was absolutely brilliant. But before I talk about the Patagonia thing, Chris, I just want to speak a little bit about Fresh Walks. So eight years ago, I got together with Tom Hetherington, top foodie in the north, and Michael DePaula, who was an agency boss, to suggest a very different way of doing business networking working. As you know, I don't drink. So I wasn't that keen on going along to Michael's event, which he did at the time, which was called Twit Faced. You can guess where that's going, can't you? Absolutely. Um, But apparently it was very good, but it's not my kind of thing. So we organized the day of what I called at the time networking. We had absolutely no idea what we were doing. We had all, we had, we had neither the idea nor the gear. But Tom led us on a decent route out of Glossop. We ended up back in the pub afterwards and it was just, we wanted to take it somewhere. And, and what grew out of that and um, was, was the brand Fresh Walks, which Michael developed. And, and since then, we've become really, really good friends. And it's really grown. There are different levels of walk, paid for, ticketed events, corporate services. We've got an ex-SAS mate of ours, um, Martin Murphy, who does high-level team bonding trips. We do city walks, so you can pick up in Liverpool or Manchester and do guided walks around the cities as well. I say we, I'm not involved in it. I just, I'm just one, one of the people who goes. Overseas trips to Switzerland, to, a, to Northern Ireland, uh, Lake District overnights. But more than anything, it's, it proved it's such a good way for men and women to bond. Because cycling, well, you can't really talk when you go yeah. cycling together. People were trying to tell me that was the new golf. Golf's rubbish, frankly. I was never any good at it, just yeah. like I was never any good at drinking. So yeah. I gave up both. Um, but this walking thing is absolutely brilliant. And I fully embraced, which leads me on, which is not a digression, leads me on to Gorpcore as well, which is Gore-Tex Leisure Wear, which leads us on to Patagonia. Well, are you now, trying to get some freebies for Christmas? Is well, that more plan? than that. Well, here's the thing, Chris. I'm actually a brand ambassador for a Swedish outdoor brand called Haglofs, so I get loads of free gear off them. But I love Patagonia, and I would glad... They, they don't do influencers and all that stuff. Um, they don't give free stuff away, much to the much to the chagrin of our producer, Sam, who's a, who's a, who really does rock his Patagonia as well. Um, but their shop is dangerously close to the studio. It's a B Corp, the, the company. It's an American company founded by Yvonne Chouinard. 
and he's fanatical about doing good. He's always interrogating new ways to, to get better fabrics, to the way cotton's grown and harvested, not using pesticides and, and um, chemicals in the production of the clothing. And he recycles his profits. And he's announced recently he's not giving the business to his kids when he dies. He's giving it away. And I just think it's a fantastic inspiration. And when he, when he opened the shop five years ago, and it was a fifth birthday party last week, he said that this is a gift to the people of Manchester. Because he used to come climbing in the Peak District. Mm. And he did, one of his first things that he developed was the, a rugby shirt for climbing. Because the old climbers from that golden generation of British climbers uh, developed rugby shirts and corduroy trousers. So I'm going to give you a, a chance to speak in a moment. Okay. But anyway, I got into all of this because the mountain range on the Patagonia logo, yeah, is called the Torres de Pain in um, Patagonia, in Chile, on the Chilean side of the border in Patagonia, which my mum's dear friends, Ian and Nicky Clough, were famous climbers from that golden generation in the 60s. So I wear the logo on my badge, on, on the badge on my jacket. They climbed those mountains in the 1960s. They stowed away on a container ship across the Atlantic to go and do that incredible people. So I've embraced the mountains over the last few years and I do it very much in the memory of Ian and Nikki and very much in the spirit of my mum. Well, you know, literally I'm, I'm welling up here, but um, I'm still kind of getting my head around the fact that you are a brand ambassador for anybody, <laughs> anybody, seriously. No, you mentioned Patagonia. The reason that, um, you know, made me think was that my late great uh, Nan Merrick, she died uh, about 13 years ago. She was 99, amazing woman. Um, she was the one person who thought I could be a first class cricketer. The rest of the world didn't, um, but she thought I could and the rest of the world was right. Um, but she uh, was born in Wales and when she was about one, her and her family went to, went to Argentina and they had farms in Patagonia, uh, if my memory serves me correct. And I, I recorded an interview with her. And then when she was a teenager, about 15, her and her two sisters and her mum left Argentina to go back to Wales. Uh, and, then, uh, and then her dad and her brother stayed to run farms out in, uh, in Argentina. They never saw each other again. Uh, her dad died in his 90s. And uh, it was amazing because obviously if she'd not come back to, to England uh, or not come back to Wales and then subsequently to England, um, then, then I wouldn't be here. This podcast wouldn't be here <laughs> and the world would be a much worse place. So there is an urban myth that there were soldiers fighting in the Falklands War who were Welsh speakers on both the British and the Argentinian side. And they maintained a dialogue in Welsh across the trenches. I think that's probably an urban myth, but I'll dig it out for you. But there are some fantastic documentaries where Welsh filmmakers have gone to meet the the, um, the, the Welsh-speaking community in Patagonia. And it's an amazing story. They established links between Wales and Argentina as well. And back in 1982, when we had the Falklands War, you know, my nan, she was in tears about it, you know, because she had very divided loyalties. She still considered herself to be half Argentinian. Now, uh, did you know we... that the Falkland Islands accent is quite similar to Welsh? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but that's what we bring to the Northern Spin. One thing we do need to mention is we have got a podcast extra this week with a very, very, very special guest. Yeah, we have. We've got Elise Wilson the leader of the Labour group on Stockport Council and the best Labour leader, that, the best leader that Stockport's ever had. She'll be joining us on the podcast to talk about everything that she's achieved in Stockport and also what her plans are now because she's not standing for election next year. So stay tuned, pot pickers. <laughs> Now, that's the end of uh, this episode of uh, Northern Spin. Yeah, um, we're now on Apple Podcasts, so please subscribe. Give us a five-star review. Tell your friends, your family, everyone to give it a listen and give us a review. Thanks, as ever, to What Media for recording this podcast, for punting it out there, to Oscar Technology for sponsoring us, and 
to the amazing music producer, Elliot Taylor, for providing the music. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at northern underscore spin one. I've been Michael Taylor. And next week we've got a special podcast as well. Um, So uh, stay tuned for that. And my name as always is Chris McGuire.